Uh, say awkwardly say hello to somebody from a distance because that's what we do around here and I believe the camera right behind you Noah is on so feel free to wave to some people who are home they like that I think say your names if you want to say your names I heard that these two guys haven't said their names yet go ahead yeah we like awkwardness and then once you've done that go ahead and have a seat it's good to see you all this morning Bruce is moving chairs that's fine uh, how are how are you? We seem a little quiet today. We good? We got one? Are we awake? Okay, it is kind of a sleepy day. Both my wife and I are kind of like, wow, did we even sleep at all? So it is, and Dylan's in trouble because he threw her under the bus for showing up a few minutes late. You're you're gonna get it. Uh, one of uh, one of when when Carrie and I got married, my brother did my did our wedding. His name's Bob. He's a pastor in Texas, uh, uh, not the cool part of Texas. He's in a place called Odessa, which sounds as flat and ugly as it is. Uh, it's like the moon out there, but there's a lot of oil. Uh, and so when he was, uh, we we're getting ready to get married, and, and we got married in my parents' backyard, and my brother Bob's doing the wedding, and he had a conversation with Carrie and I. He says, uh, okay, well, I know you guys are getting premarital counseling, which we had, and we've been dating for a while, and I was 30, she was 28, and, uh, and so, whoa, hello. And so it was just one of those things of like, okay, Bob's doing our wedding, and so he decided he was going to ask us some questions and tell us some stories. One of the things that he had said is something that stuck with me. Now, I don't normally listen to my brother. Uh, I do. He's actually very wise, and, and we are very close. And, uh, but he speaks, he spoke this from a place of really a lot of experience. See, he was married. And his wife left him. And so he, he knows a lot about that pain. He knows what happens. He knows the risk that you take when you come to marriage. And so he said this. He said, the people who are closest to you are the ones who can hurt you the most. How many of you have ever experienced this? Is it true? Absolutely. In fact, the words he said, he said it this way. He said it like a Texan would. Getting married is like handing someone a forty-five and saying, don't pull the trigger. Because it's guns, Texas, that's what he thinks like. And so that's what he said. And he was right. Uh, the people who are closest to us are the ones who can hurt us the most. And we've experienced this. Some of our closest friends are the ones that give us the biggest wounds. And also, the ones who give you, the, some of the people who give you the biggest wounds are your family. Many of us have experienced this. Our family, the place where you're supposed to find nurturing, the place where you're supposed to find peace, shelter from the outside, the family is oftentimes the biggest culprit when it comes to pain. And so this series, as we're looking at the biggest picture of shalom and what it means to have peace, we've looked at peace with ourselves, we looked at peace with God, we defined what peace is and how it's shaped in scripture. Today we come to one of the hardest places to find peace. And that's family. If I were to give you a chance, and I want you to speak it out loud because some of you are, listen, or, are listening with your family or here with your family. If you could think of one word to describe your family, what is it? Is it kind? No, sometimes that word is harsh. There was one author who did this, and he, he said to the group he was with, one word to describe your family, and one person said, uh, it's like a silk dress on a cactus. It looks nice, but don't you dare get too close. It's going to poke you. One person said a marble column. 
I know they're two words or four words, but whatever, go with me. But, and, and he pushed a little, well, why a marble column? And she said, because this person in my family is uh, strong and ornate and beautiful and also very, very, very hard. Families are tough. Families shape us. Did you know the way you view God is sometimes determined by how a relationship between you and one of your parents or both of your parents? That shapes how you view God. Families are formative, and they can be formative either in good ways or bad ways, or a harmful way. Uh, In Carrie and my family, we have a, a family member that is mental illness, and it affects almost every single part of life. Uh, and uh, it affects the way growing up, affects the way you view the world, affects the way you interact with folks. And so the way you grow up and the family you grow up with determines, or a lot of ways, affects your faith. And so when we come to this part and we say, we're trying to find peace in the family, many of us are like, yeah, yeah not mine, right? There's no way we can find peace in our family. Today, we're going to take the long road through Genesis. Don't worry, we're not going to go every place. But I want to focus in on the last part of Genesis. There's this man named Joseph. Joseph came from the most dysfunctional family in existence. Seriously, you think your family's got problems? We're going to look at Joseph's. We're going to look at how he overcame a lot of the problems with his family. There's three ways he did it, and we'll, we'll get to those at the end. But first, let's look at Joseph's family. The first one we see is Abraham. Abraham was the father. Father Abraham had many sons, many sons. Father Abraham, I'm one of them. So are you. Do we know the song? Okay, at least nod with me, folks. I can't see half of your face. At least raise your hand. We can sing that one afterwards if Dylan's young enough to remember it. But He had a lot of kids. That was the promise in Genesis 12. God said, look, I'm going to make you a great nation. And in fact, in order to be a great nation, you have to have a lot of children. And so he says, I'm going to make you a nation. You're going to have a lot of kids. Now there's this whole thing with it took forever, literally, for Abraham to have children. It wasn't until he was 90-something that he had kids. So there's this whole thing with faith. And does he trust in God that he's going to do what he said he was going to do? And so this is Abraham's struggle. And he was commended for his faith in Romans and all the way through Genesis. Abraham was a faithful person. But he had some problems. As a man and as a father, he wasn't as stellar as his faith was. He had a pride problem. He had a trust problem. And he liked to lie. In fact, here's one time in Genesis 20, verse 1. It says, this is after Sodom and Gomorrah, this thing with Lot, his nephew. Uh, He comes and Abraham moves to this region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. You know where that's at. For a while he stayed in Gerar. And there Abraham said said of his wife, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. Now, how would you now put yourself in your shoes? You're Sarah. Put yourself in her sandals, rather. You're Sarah. You're married to Abraham. You move. You're in a brand new place. And what and how does Abraham introduce you to his friends? This is my sister. How does that make you feel? That's not very honoring. It's not very safe. It's not very uplifting. And if you look at Abraham, he is afraid. And he doesn't want to admit 
who Sarah is, because if he does, he says, it says later in the story that they'll kill him and take Sarah. And so what's, he, what's this show us? He would rather lie about who his wife is than put himself at risk. It's a good dude right there, yeah? And we're not trying to defame Abraham. No, he, he's the father of Judaism. He's the father of the people of Israel. Abraham's a good man. But even good people have their faults. And so we look at this. Abraham didn't or wasn't honest. In verse 11 of the same chapter, Abimelech comes and goes, what are you doing? He gets a visit from God in a dream saying, don't you dare touch this woman. This is, not, this is Abraham's wife. So God tells him the truth. Abimelech comes to Abraham the next morning. And Abraham said, look, uh, <coughs> there is surely no fear in God in this place. And I was afraid you would kill me. So I gave you my wife instead. Guys who are married or getting married, this is not what you do. This is not a good thing. To, this is not how you support and love your spouse. But the thing is, this wasn't the first time Abraham did this. This was a repeat offense. In Genesis 12, he moves down to Egypt. The same kind of thing happens. Pharaoh comes, sees that Sarah's attractive, and, tr and then takes Sarah. And what's Abraham say then? Genesis 12, same thing. It's my sister. The Pharaoh gets a visit the next day or after a while and he comes back to Abraham and says, what are you doing? And Abraham, the same thing. I was afraid you'd kill me instead of my wife. And so I gave my wife instead of me. Selfish. This is the, the pillar of the family that brings out Jesus, okay? When God introduces himself 19 times in scripture to Moses to, uh, and, and, and earlier in Genesis, he always says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He starts out with Abraham. Abraham doesn't show the greatest of traits, yet he has this family that changes the world. He starts out by lying. Not a great example of a father right there. He had wronged so many people that he was supposed to defend. And if you think about it, maybe it just stops there. It stops with Abraham. No, 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 no. Abraham had a son later. His first son was named Isaac. Or second son was named Isaac. The, the family troubles continued and there was a, a, a son born of Hagar that wasn't, a, that wasn't Sarah's son. So Sarah said, you can sleep with my hand, maidservant and so you can get an heir. And so this is, that's a problem as well. And then Sarah finally conceives when she's 92, I believe. And then this son is named Isaac. Isaac grows up. And then when Isaac is married uh, in Genesis 26, so Isaac goes down to this place called Gerar. Place sound familiar, right? In verse 7, when the men of that place asked him who his wife said, and you're reading this going, please do the right thing. What's he say? She's my sister. Because he was afraid to say she's my wife. Why? Because the men of the place might kill me on account of Rebekah. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Now when Isaac had been there for a long time, Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife Rebekah. And Abimelech said, what? Is she, is she really your wife? Why did you say she's your sister? And what's the answer? Because I thought I'd lose my life on account of her. This is really starting well, right? Abraham, liar. Isaac, a liar. 
The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. No, in fact, it keeps repeating and repeating. Isaac and Rebekah, this is the family tree. Isaac and Rebekah start a family. They have two sons named Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau constantly fighting. In fact, in the womb of Rebekah, there was a fight. She said, this feels there's a lot of kicking happening. And one person said, there are two nations at war within you. Jacob and Esau are born. Isaac wants to play favorites. Isaac decides he likes Esau better because he brings him meat. I don't blame him. I enjoy meat rather than the green stuff. And so he, he brings him meat and, and, and Isaac is, is more drawn to Esau. He be, begins playing favorites. Now Jacob is a mama's boy. He likes, his mother likes him best. And so it came time for Isaac to die. Isaac is then says, call my son Esau for I want to bless him. Rebekah goes to Jacob and says, here, here's the plan. You're going to dress up like your brother. His brother was very hairy, so hairy that he decided to put on some fur. I don't know how hairy that has to be, that you have to put on a fur coat in order to look like somebody, but okay, I'm not there yet. And so there, there's a lot of hair on, on Esau, so he puts on Esau, then he puts on Esau's jacket, so he feels and smells like Esau, because Isaac is blind. He goes in, Jacob goes in, and he dresses up like him. And then uh, Isaac's like, is this Esau? And Jacob's like, yes, I'm Esau, which is a whole other thing. Jacob had an identity issue. But he said, I am Esau. And Isaac goes, really? Because you came back with that meal real quick. And in verse 27, or verse 24, chapter 27, are you my son? He asked, I am, he replied. Then he said, son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I might give you the blessing. And then Jacob brought it to him and he ate and he brought some wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went up and kissed him. And when Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, so he smelled like Esau, he blessed him. Family dynamics a little off here. So far we have liars, a lot of liars. We have thieves. We have people who don't care for their families too much. We have favoritism going on. And then we have ultimate deception. Now here's where it gets interesting. Esau catches wind of this. He comes back with the game he's prepared. He goes in to see his dad and all of a sudden his dad goes, uh-oh, that was Jacob. Esau promised from that moment that he was going to kill Jacob. And for 25 years, he held on to that. I am going to kill my brother. This is the family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God stakes his hat on. This is the family dy dynamics that we look at. Now, some of our families uh, play the comparison game. Some of our families, this, this happens. You're compared to your brother. You're kind, you kind of identify with Jacob and Esau. Or maybe you look at some of your family of origin and your mom and dad have a, a problem with deception or they're selfish. They never took care of you. Maybe you carried that around. We can identify a lot or some of us can identify a lot with what's happening here. This family isn't the most stellar family that we want to think about. Jacob got even worse. Jacob's name, it should be weasel because he tries to weasel his way and steal everything in order to make himself better. Jacob had two wives, one named Leah and one named Rachel. It's said that Jacob really loved Rachel. Leah, 
not so much. He kind of was forced to marry her in some kind of trickery by his father-in-law, which is a whole other story. This family dynamic here is bad. He had 10 sons from Leah, two sons from Rachel. He favored the two sons from Rachel, Joseph, who we're going to look at more, and Benjamin. So much that when Joseph was younger, Joseph was in the house, his brothers hated Joseph because they knew he was the favorite. So Joseph comes, and he's walking down in one day, and they sell them, his brothers come to him, and they say, let's kill him. How's that for your sibling rivalry? They dislike you so much that they're going to kill you. And finally, one, with a kind of a straight head on, goes, no, 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 no. Let's not kill them. Let's sell him to slavery. Let's make some money off of this. How would you like it if your brothers sold you into slavery? They sold them down the road. That's not a great family dynamic there either. A little bit before this, Jacob heard some news. His daughter from Leah was raped. And instead of doing anything, Jacob did nothing. So much to the fact that when his sons heard about this and saw that dad hadn't done anything about it, they took it on their own accord and went and killed every man in that town. And when the word got back to Jacob, Jacob's response was this. How dare you cause me shame by killing them? It says in verse 30 of that chapter, Jacob said, you have brought trouble on me, making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and the Prizites, the people living in this land. We are few in number. And if they join forces against me and attack me, I'll be destroyed. Your daughter was raped. You did nothing. And so your sons take care of it. And what's your response? You're more concerned with your reputation than your daughter's honor and justice for your daughter. And then you let your sons go unchecked and murder a whole town. One of his sons said this back to him. Said, should we have allowed our sister to be treated like a prostitute? And that question hangs in the air. It's not responded to. The chapter ends right there. There's not a healthy relationship at all. Jacob is passive. Jacob lets his sons do whatever they want to do, unchecked. He's not present. He lets his sons or his sons have this kind of idea where if they sell their, ki their kid brother into slavery, dad's not going to do anything about it. What's he care how many of us have passive parents? Never took an interest in your life? Never did that? Had brothers that wanted to kill you? This is not a happy family. So what do we do when we look at this story and we see that God wants to bring peace to your families? Especially when families bring us often the most pain. It seems like family problems keep going and they repeat and they repeat and they keep going and going and going. And oftentimes our families don't get any better. 
It starts with a simple lie, and then the lie gets repeated, and it gets repeated to the next generation. And then at the end of the road, it keeps getting worse and worse and worse, and it ends up with selling your family member into slavery. The dysfunction reaches its climax. They put the fun in dysfunctional, I suppose, but this is the, this is the problem. For many of us, this is the story of our households. You're not a stranger to any of this. This is your reality. It goes like this. Mom was an alcoholic, therefore I'm an alcoholic. Dad was passive, therefore I'm passive. The cycles of dysfunction keep finding new ways to reinvent themselves from generation to generation. And when you look back on your family, you might see this. We pick up what our parents show us. I didn't think that was true until one day I cleared my throat and I thought I heard my dad. I sneezed and I was like, oh, that's, that's my dad's sneeze. I hear it in my family. My, my dad had this way of saying, well, before he started a sentence. The other day I'm talking to Carrie and I go, well, I'm like, oh, wow, that's my dad. I picked up my mom's really interesting sense of humor. She, we're sarcastic as the Thayer family. We find humor in the darkest of things. Our house was burning down and we made jokes about it while it's on fire. This is my family. It explains a lot about me. We pick up our family traits. The good ones and the bad ones. But listen to this, your, your past family failure doesn't have to be your future forecast. You don't have to repeat the sins of your mother and father. You don't have to repeat the cycle. You are allowed to break from it. Let's look at Joseph because that's exactly what he did. He had every right to be angry. Every single person he trusted had failed him. His dad didn't defend him. His brother sold him off. And now he's in China. He's in Egypt. Yet Joseph embodies for us uh, how we can find peace from our for, with our families. The first thing he did, he kept his faith in the midst of the struggle. Joseph was a slave, but as you look at his life, it starts in Genesis 39, as you look in his life, he always worked himself into something better. He always kept faith. It said Joseph believed that the Lord was with him, and he worked. And so he finds himself in a slave, as a slave, and pretty soon he works up to being Potiphar's right-hand man. He was in charge of everything that Potiphar owned. Potiphar entrusted him with everything but the food. And that's significant because if you're a man like Potiphar, people want to kill you. And if someone brings me dinner, I'm going to say, Dan, take a bite of this. Then I'm going to watch Dan real close. And if he dies, it's poison, but it's, it's just Dan. That's fine. Sorry, bud. He didn't want Joseph to die. And so Joseph didn't test the food. So Joseph was valuable to him. Joseph's in charge of everything. And it says in the scriptures, it says uh, that Joseph was strong and that he was built and he was handsome. He was probably a 10, maybe had a shaved head and a beard, liked flannel. He's probably a good looking dude. You would agree? All right. And then uh, Genesis 39, my wife better be nodding her head. I can't see from here. At after, in Genesis 39, 7, it says this. After a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But Joseph refused. 
With me in charge, he told her, my master doesn't concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns is in my care. And then she keeps trying to get him to come to bed. And finally, she got so frustrated that she framed Joseph for sleeping with her. Kept one of his cloaks that he ran away. Some historians say that she was reaching for him and pulled off his tunic and he ran through the house naked to get away from her. And then she made up this story that Joseph tried to sleep with her, which landed Joseph in prison. So even when Joseph tries to do the right thing, he's punished for it. Now, considering everything that had happened to Joseph, would you blame him for being mad and bitter, given his story? No, I wouldn't blame him. But watch what he does. He keeps doing the right thing. He holds on to his faith at the point of trial And in doing so, he breaks the cycle of doubt in his family's life. Abraham comes, moves in here, moves into Gerar. She's faced with a trial of Abimelech trying to steal his wife. And what's he do? The dishonest thing. She's my sister. Isaac does the same thing. Jacob doesn't defend the honor of his family. This is the line that he comes, but look at it stops here with Joseph. I'm I'm going to hold on to what's right. I'm going to do the right thing. Joseph faced the decision that many of us face. Do we rise above our past and break the cycles, or do we remain controlled by them and make excuses? Well, I'm this way because so-and-so was this way. Many of us choose to remain controlled. If I'd been born somewhere else, maybe it'd be different but I was born here, so I'm this way. If I had only been treated fairly, maybe it'd be different. It doesn't have to be family. If, if only this job would have done what was right in my eyes, and if I was fair, then it, I wouldn't be so bitter. If only I had better parents. Maybe if I had more money. Maybe if I had greater opportunities. Maybe if I was potty trained sooner, spanked less, taught to hold my fork right. Maybe all of these things contributed to where I am now. And what these come, and they might be great reasons, but what they turn into is permission for you to keep the cycle repeating. He could have easily said, if my brothers weren't such jerks, I wouldn't be in prison. So it's their fault I'm sleeping with the boss's wife. No. Instead, he held on to his faith and broke out of those chains. Anxiety runs in my family. I've talked about it at length here. Many of you know I struggle with anxiety. It runs in my family. Dad had it. Mom has it. We worry. I can allow that to grip my life and control it, or I can do some things to try and stop it so my two boys aren't crippled with anxiety when they grow up. I can model what it looks like to trust instead of worry. I can do the things that help me with my anxiety. I can exercise. I can get outside. I can read. I can pour myself into scripture. Things that break the cycle. I, or I could easily say, it's the way my family is, so sorry, Judah, Caleb. You're just going to be worrying. Which is healthier? Which brings more peace? Break it. Break the cycle. Many of you are in these cycles Sex addiction, substance abuse. And you have a choice. You can either break it 
and do the work because it is not easy or you can allow it to control you. It's up to you. Joseph allowed it or stopped the cycle. He didn't allow it to control him. He held on to his faith. The second thing we see of Joseph is he refused to hold a grudge. He was in prison a while. Then he gets out, and now he's back in charge of the entire nation. He's holding on to their food. There was a great famine in the land, and Joseph was responsible because God gave him a dream that that he would prepare Egypt in order to last the famine. So they have years of grain and food all stored up. Turns out that his brothers didn't have the clue what was coming. And so he's face to face with his brothers. You might know the story. Joseph is face to face with them. And they come looking for grain because they're not prepared. And finally, what Joseph, watch what Joseph does. And Joseph, this is in chapter 45. Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I'm your brother, Joseph the one you sold to Egypt. Now don't be distressed. Don't be angry. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. What would you do in this situation? You're face to face with your family who had wronged you. They're coming to you now for life because there's no food. It would be so easy for Joseph to go, nah, They don't get food. Don't come to Egypt. Go up to Lebanon. You do something else. But Joseph forgives. He doesn't hold. In fact, he's forgiving them. Now, forgiveness is this deeply layered idea, and we don't have time to fully unpack it, but let's look at one layer. When you forgive somebody, it doesn't mean that it was okay what they did to you. It doesn't mean that they hurt you and it gives them permission to hurt you again. It's not permission to open yourselves up and be a doormat. You can forgive someone and still call what they did to you wrong. That's perfectly fine, and you can still forgive them. But what you are doing with forgiving them is allowing yourself not to hold a grudge against them. It means that the revenge you've been planning for years is done. It doesn't mean that you're best friends again. Sometimes you can forgive someone and never hang out with them again, and that's fine. Forgiveness has boundaries. It doesn't mean that you move back into the abusive situation. In fact, if there's abuse going on, get the heck out of there. It's permission, don't stay in an abusive marriage. Don't stay in abusive relationships and think you're doing the right thing. If you're being harmed, say goodbye. Get yourself some safety. If you need to find safety, contact me. We'll figure this out. But forgiving someone doesn't mean you give them permission to hurt you. You can forgive somebody and move out. You can forgive somebody and put up a wall there. It's okay to forgive and separate. It's okay to forgive. What you're doing by forgiving is releasing yourself from being the judge of them. You're breaking the chains and the cycle of resentment. You're breaking that. And this is what Joseph needed to do in order to make peace. He said, look, I'm not angry with you. 
And he was able to release his brothers from his anger. And then he was able to see what God was doing in the midst of it. And that's the last part of the last thing Joseph did. He didn't hold a grudge. And then he saw how God was weaving together his story for good. When Jacob died, there was this uh, nervousness around his brothers. His brothers thought, oh man, the only reason Joseph's not keeping us alive is because dad's, or Joseph's not killing us is because dad's still alive. When dad's dead, he's going to wipe us out. And so the dad died, Jacob died. And so uh, his brothers come to him and say, look, we'll be your slaves. We'll do anything you want. And Joseph looks at them and says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Am I your judge, he says? No, you intended harm for me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. There are some interesting words to look at here, and we're running out of time, but there's two words that I want us to, uh, to, to look at quickly. Joseph had been through a lot in his life, all of it at somebody else's actions. He was a victim. He didn't do anything wrong. You could say he'd been through the fire and he comes out the other side. And so he's got some perspective when he says this line. It's not that he's saying it growing up in the easy life. It's not that he's saying this and never experienced any hardship. No, he's saying this after coming through the fire. He says, what you did for evil, it was evil. What you wove together for evil, brothers, was absolutely wrong. He never called it right. But look at what he says next. Yes, that was evil, but I'm able to find God's hand moving in the midst of it. You intended to harm me, but God used it to accomplish what was good. And now that's being done. The, ter- the phrase God intended is two Hebrew words, Elohim chasab. Elohim is the word that's used most often in Genesis for God. It means God. It's the word that's used for God in, in Genesis 1. Chasab literally means to weave. As in, here is what's happening, and God sees the evil and goes, I didn't cause this, I don't condone this, but I'm going to use this. And so God weaves in this pain and says, I'm, I specialize in taking the heartaches of our lives and making them beautiful. We see this all through the rest of the Old Testament. He takes ashes and makes them flowers. He takes graves and makes them, what's the song say, armies. He does, he does these things. He takes the pain and brings beauty from them. What you meant for evil, God's going to take it and weave it into this tapestry that is going to be beautiful. There's no doubt that evil is happening around us. And to say that God approved of the evil that's happened to you is an outright lie. To say that God caused the evil that's happened to you is another lie. But to say that God is going to use the evil that was done to you is the truth. He redeems it. It breaks his heart as much as it breaks yours. But the perspective that Joseph had is the same perspective that we should have. God is able to redeem and restore even the most horrid of stories. I don't know all of your stories. 
I don't know what you've walked through. I've, I might be able to put two and two together from conversations that we've had, but I know that there's pain that's in all of your stories. And I know the question that's come of it is, where is God in the middle of this? And why is God allowing this to happen to me? Why did God put me in this family? And though I can't answer all of those philosophical questions, I can say this to you. God will use whatever situation you've come through and make it something beautiful. It's easier said than done. There's a lot of work that's attached to it. But the first thing that we see that Joseph does is he holds on to his faith, knowing that God is going to use this for something good. Walking through pain, God's going to use this. Walking through sorrow, God's going to use this. Doesn't mean that God is happy with it. He's going to use this. When our house burnt down, God is going to use this. When dad died, God is going to use this. When my brother's wife left him, God is going to use this. And he has. When my other brother's wife left him, God is going to use this. And he has every single time. And it hurt to walk through it as a family. It hurt, but God is going to use it. I mentioned that we have a family member with mental illness. God is using that to equip my family to minister to those who have the same experience. God is using this. God will use the pain that you walk through in your family to bring peace. God will weave it together for good. Your past family history doesn't have to be your personal future. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that even in our most difficult families, you can bring peace. Even when the challenge seems like it's way too much for anyone to bear, you specialize in it. Lord, the the pain from divorce, the pain from death, the pain from abuse, the pains from mental illness, the pains from neglect, the pains that we all walk around with, often caused by the ones who are closest to us, you, you can use those. You can work with that. Lord, as we think of you bringing peace to every aspect of our lives, God, we bring to you our families and we say our families are broken. Even the best ones have have some heartache in them. God, perhaps the first step we do is bring those to you and say, God, would you bring peace to this situation? Somehow and in some way, would you redeem the brokenness of my family? Lord, would you give us the courage to hold on with faith when everything around us is telling us to abandon it? Would you give us the strength to forgive and not hold grudges and not plan revenge? And would you give us the perspective to see your hand moving inside of all of it, bringing beauty from ashes? bringing hope from hopelessness. And may you bring peace to our lives.
It's in your name we pray. Amen.